This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Ohio Senate went ahead and overrode the governor's vetoes. Lots to talk about there on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston and Layla Tassi. Lisa Garvin's taking a couple of days off. Let's go to it. Did the Ohio Senate go ahead and show its disregard for the health of black people by overriding a Mike DeWine veto and ensuring flavored tobacco remains readily available throughout the state? Layla, it's not a surprise, but man, it is despicable. Yes, they surely did this, man. The Ohio Senate voted to approve that veto override yesterday. So now local governments are prohibited from enacting laws on tobacco products that are stricter than the state laws. And that means that cities like Columbus, which has on the books an ordinance banning the sale of flavored tobacco products, can't enforce their law. And maybe they want to consider suing the state for violating their home rule authority. We'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. So Republicans had squeezed this measure into the state budget bill and Governor DeWine vetoed it. He believes that cities should have the right to ban flavored tobacco sales because Nine out of 10 kids who start smoking or vaping say that they're using flavored products. It's a pretty easy connection to make. DeWine says that doing other well, other than, than banning this is, is a gift to big tobacco. But, you know, his fellow Republicans who override his veto characterize it as a way to establish consistency with the law across Ohio instead of a hodgepodge of laws. And also they claim to be acting in the best interest of small business owners who are worried that if their business is located in a city with a flavored tobacco ban, customers seeking those products are going to just go to the suburbs. Okay. I want you to follow me here. And I wish we could play movie clips on this podcast, but we don't have rights. In the movie, <laughs> The Godfather, the, the, the movie's about a family and the, the, the machinations of a family, but there's a plot that is involving a, a mob war because one of the key families won't allow drugs to be sold. They want to just stay with the rackets of gambling and prostitution and things like that. And there's a big war and people die and there's bloodshed, but it ends up in a scene where they're sitting around a table, the five families for a truce in which they finally come to an agreement that they will allow drugs to be sold, but only in black neighborhoods. And they say terrible things about black people. Think of that scene, swap in the Ohio legislature. That's what they just did. They are perfectly fine with selling cancer-causing products in this way because it's only to black people. This is where this stuff is sold. They're arguing that this is to, to block this would hurt vendors. By that argument, we would allow vendors to sell crack cocaine and heroin because they'd make a lot of money doing it. But you know why they don't? 
white people would get addicted. This is about the black people. I, it's amazing to me they're doing this. You cannot make any justification. This will cause cancer. This will cause uh, addiction. It will cause agony for families. And someday this state's going to right itself. We're going to get rid of all of these pretty evil people that now are in the, the legislative positions. And when the history books are written, this is a moment I feel certain that will be portrayed as the low point of this state. Uh, you, you look back over history, there's always somebody on the wrong side of a terrible issue. That's what these guys just did. You can't justify it. You are causing harm. Mike DeWine was absolutely right about it. Go watch that Godfather scene. Tell me I'm wrong. No, I agree with with everything you said about they're certainly on the wrong side of history. You know, here's something else um, that occurred to me yesterday. Back in 2015, Cleveland City Council banned the sale of tobacco and e-cigarettes to anyone under the age of 21. That's on the books in Cleveland. I assume the state law undercuts that too. So it's not just the flavored products law that, that, uh, that we're talking about. So Cleveland also, like Columbus, could pursue a challenge to the state law on the grounds that it undermines their home rule authority. And the only reason they're doing it is because the tobacco lobby has used its influence in its cash to get them to do it. I mean, it, th that's it. That's their only motive. It's a profit motive for these losers who are passing the laws and it's causing incredible harm. This isn't, they also overrode the veto on the transgender issue, which is, you know, much more the dog whistle. It, it affect, it's a terrible thing. It's anti-transgender. So they're anti-black people, they're anti-transgender, they're anti-everything, but it doesn't affect nearly as many people as this tobacco thing. That This yeah. is going to be countable. You're going to be able to count the lives lost by the increase in addiction that they just set in motion. And they sit there and pretend they're serving Ohioans. It's an amazing story. I can't, I, I, it's getting some national attention, but I, it's just, you cannot justify this. There is no legitimate justification for it. They're claiming it's for the vendors, but that's just not, if, if that were true, all sorts of things would be sold locally. We'll have to see if they follow up on Mike DeWine's push to get the Delta products out of mm -hmm, those stores mm -hmm. because that's the same argument. It's going to hurt the vendors, but will exactly. they hurt the vendors because it's marijuana and they don't like marijuana or will they stay by what they just did here and say it's a free market? It's a great question. Yeah. It, it's just a sad day for Ohio. Someday this will get overturned, but how long will it take to get there? You're listening to today in Ohio. How do a couple of Republican Ohio lawmakers see a path to abolishing the state income tax? And what does Governor Mike DeWine think about that proposal, Laura? Well, I, I'm glad that Mike DeWine is saying this. This seems like something we need to look at rather than just embracing this, because on its surface, this seems absurd. And, you know, unicorns and rainbows and confetti everywhere because these Republicans want to completely abolish Ohio state income tax and commercials activity tax by 2030 without any corresponding spending cuts or other tax increases. And they think that if they get rid of the the income tax, that they would kickstart Ohio's economy so much that sales tax, along with an increase in gas and oil production, including probably under state parks, would shoot up enough that it would fully color, cover the lost income from these taxes. We're talking about $13 billion. And this seems insane. 
cutting income taxes is not automatically going to make people go out and buy more things in Ohio so much that the sales tax covers it. Like there's no research, there's no numbers, there's no data. They just look like, hey, let's get rid of the tax. This seems Well, I don't know. I think they did put together a plan. They said they've looked at what happened in Kansas and they're trying to do it differently. Um, so look, this is, this is again, another one that's meant to appease the base, but we pay a lot of taxes in Ohio. So I think any discussion of taxes in Ohio is worth having. What, what, what do we need? Uh, when I lived in Florida where they didn't have as many taxes, I always felt like the legislature was constrained by the amount of money it could play with in Ohio. And they got no end of money there. There's just money everywhere that they can spend. Um, and it, it's worth a discussion. They don't spend it on the right stuff. They still haven't fixed the unemployment system. So that's still a disaster. Um, child care. <laughs> but, but you, a discussion of our tax structure, cause we pay everything. We pay every municipal tax. And, sure. And state income tax and property taxes that are actually pretty high and sales taxes and admissions taxes. But those are taxes all going to and, v- different government bodies. Like this is just talking about state. If you're talking about property taxes, the majority of that is going to your schools. If you're talking about the, the ticket taxes you're paying, that's going to the city. The income taxes a, a giant chunk of those more than is going to the state are going to the cities where you work and where you live. I a hundred percent agree that too much of my money goes to taxes, but to just throw this out there that we're going to abolish this within six years without a corresponding increase somewhere else or cuts to the budget seems really irresponsible. Although and, I think they're trying to start a conversation. Sure, I, think okay. they, I think they're saying, look, it could, is this attainable? We pay too much. And we do know that people have gravitated towards states that don't have the same tax structure. Should we look at the tax structure? I mean, it, it's just, you know, every, every November, how many taxes do we vote on that we're, that we're dealing with? And we're not voting on state ones. And, We're voting on local ones. And people all think about Rita as a, as a tax when it's their local yeah, municipal income understand. tax. There are states that don't have a state income tax. They don't have municipal income taxes, and they do pretty well. Shouldn't we have some kind of restraint on government? Uh, so I like the discussion. I do think the people arguing against it are are using hyperbole to stop it. And what we need is a sane conversation. There's it's, hyperbole on both sides of this. Yeah, but so but let's have the same conversation. Okay, let's talk but then about it. Let's talk about the whole pot of money. It's all our money that's going all different places. And if we're going to have this discussion, it would be nice to not have it piecemeal. Instead, talk about, you know, look at an average tax bill. Look at where all the money is going. See, you know, remember when they cut the income tax last time, they cut the all of the money that went to the cities, the local government fund. So then those local governments all asked for more income taxes because it's all related. And so I I don't think you can just have one discussion without the other. And what DeWine said is, look, no one likes to pay taxes. It would be lovely if we could do away with all these taxes, but we have to fund our schools. Kids have to be able to go to school in Ohio. We have to remove barriers for people such as untreated mental health problems. I, I think this is all worth looking at. The Republicans who are pushing this, they reference JFK. This is their moonshot. So they you're right. They they are clear that this is like there's not a lot of detail here. And this is the long term end goal. But I love that they're referencing a Democrat who asked what you could do for your country. 
<laughs> a plea to get rid of income taxes. Of course, and you say we should look at where we're spending the money, but if the Ohio Supreme Court continues down its path, we'll never know because they believe <laughs> that secret information, as we discussed yesterday. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Former Cleveland mayor and congressman Dennis Kucinich formally announced Wednesday he will run as an independent for Congress in the district held by Max Miller. Layla, what does he say he offers voters in his latest run? He says that he's going to be the guy who will heal the partisan divide. He'll be the great convener. He's going to bring people together. And in his words, he's going to help reestablish the sense of which is the essence of who we are as the United States. And he also said roughly 45% of the 7th Congressional District consists of the more than 20 Cuyahoga County communities that he represented in Congress from 97 until gerrymandering forced him into the same district as Toledo Democrat Marcy Kaptur, who beat him in, in the 2012 Democratic primary. But this time, he won't be a Democrat. He'll just be Dennis. <laughs> so he says he has a, uh, a bond with voters that goes far beyond party labels. In addition to serving in Congress for those years, Kucinich, of course, was Cleveland's mayor from 77 to 79. He was a state legislator and a city council member. He sought the Democratic Party's presidential nomination in 2004 and 2008. And until October, he served as campaign manager for the independent presidential campaign of Robert Kennedy Jr. Since he left Congress, he's made a couple unsuccessful runs for Ohio governor and Cleveland mayor. But throughout Kucinich's career, he says he, he took action against waste and fraud and abuse in ways that appeal to all voters, Republicans, Democrats, and independents alike. And he's really hoping that voters see him that way. We did talk to an expert who raises questions about his bond with the voters, saying that the generations who knew him are actually dying off. This mm. is a Republican district. I, mean, it's, it's, I think it's 7% weighted to Republicans. So the likelihood is that, that any Democrat that might have had a chance, they're going to split votes with Kucinich and pretty much cement Miller as the ultimate winner. I can't see Kucinich peeling a whole lot of votes away from Miller. Uh, that just seems odd. It's an odd, it's an odd one. I should point out that we're currently still under a lawsuit by Dennis Kucinich. We had a, a minor error that appeared on a story uh, and, and on this podcast a few years back that we fixed pretty quickly. He claims it damaged him. We believe we didn't damage him. So we're going deep on that one. But I should point out that that is out there. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Our story says he doesn't live in the district that he's he wants to represent. Where does he live? He he still lives in Cleveland. We don't we don't know. The last address we have for him is not in the district where he wants to represent. He's been very difficult to reach, probably because he's suing us. But it, but we don't know whether he has bought a piece of property in that district or not. Mm -hmm. All we know is the last address we have for him isn't in the district. You don't have to live in the district to run in it. Sure. Um, but but for all we know, he's got an apartment or something there. He's just not uh, he's not talking to us. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We had a lot of snow. We're having a lot of rain. Laura, does the rain mean the snow melts faster? And if so, what's the science behind it? This is my favorite story of the week. Well, look out your window, right? Do you have much snow left? Because the only thing I had is the piles that uh, we piled up for shoveling. And that's because rain does help snow melt faster. It depends on the amount of rain, the temperature of the rain, and the depth of the snowpack. And it's not the be-all end-all. It's not like rain matters more than the temperature. 
the temperature, the higher winds and higher humidity all drive greater rates of snowmelt, which I didn't think. I thought rain was just the absolute worst because I'm a skier, right? And I, I hate rain. It just like wrecks your snow. But if you've got a big... Um, if you got a big snow pile, it's not going to be hurt as much as the thinner snowpacks. I guess, you know, looking out your window will show that. Freezing rain on a snowpack creates this crust. It seals in the snow, prevents it from blowing around. The, snicker po- the, the thicker snowpacks absorb the rain, cause it to freeze inside the snow. You have more water in your snowpack. And then, obviously, when you've got it just spread out, that's where it really melts it the most. So, a, And a dry 40-degree day will melt about half an inch of snow. Add an inch of rain and you've got another six-tenths of an inch of snow that melts. So, yes, it greatly That's, that's what I loved about this story, though, because it really did give you the examples. You know, if it's 40 degrees and you get rain, here's what happens. If it's 50 degrees and you get rain, here's the difference. And the warmer it gets, the less the rain matters because right. the air temperature is what determines it. But it it's just we all presumed that rain would make it go away much, much more quickly, but there's a lot of factors involved. Pete Krause reached some people that really dove in on this. You love when scientists are excited that we're asking them questions about their field, uh, and he laid it all out in very understandable terms. Absolutely. You're listening to Today in Ohio. One of the more violent criminals from Cleveland's mob days has been trying for three years to get out of his life sentence in prison based on decades of good behavior, he finally has his answer. Laura, what is it? It's no. U.S. District Judge John Adams put out a short opinion that he'd been thinking about for years, actually, and he denied Kevin Mataggart's request. So his life sentence is intact. So it was three years that he held off in deciding he was weighing the arguments. He was waiting to see if Congress enacted a law proposed in 2021 that would have granted elderly prisoners early release based on COVID-19 vulnerability. McTaggart is 67. He was once a key ally to Irish mobster Danny Green. And after the Italian mob killed Green in a car bombing in 1977, McTaggart switched sides. He joined a crew. He made That crew made like $15 million a year selling cocaine, marijuana, meth, and LSD. So well, I feel like we're talking about the mob a lot on, on this <laughs> podcast today. Yeah. And look, this is a fundamental question, right? He's a bad guy. He did seriously bad stuff, violent beyond all get out, bloodshed and got sentenced for that. That, you know, the, the, there was a punishment that very much fit the crime. And the argument that, well, I behaved in prison, I should get out early. Well, you know, the, there was a victim's family member that basically said, no, you shouldn't. You did something mm-hmm. really bad. You harmed my family. There are consequences to criminal behavior. Why should they be erased? That's a very good question. And I think probably that's what the judge was weighing. There's a whole bunch of people who are supporting McTaggart's release. This includes the former police chief of Cleveland, Edward Kovacic, former federal prosecutor and Rocky River Municipal Judge John Conchini Fitzsimmons, former U.S. Rep. Edward Fan, um, Bernie Kosar said, hey, he can live in my guest house if he's released. And he had a sterling record. He helped save a prison psychologist after an attack. He extinguished a fire in a prison cafeteria. He organized a candy sale for needy children from jail. So uh, great. He has done some really wonderful things. I'm glad he's repentant. But you're right. You got the you did the crime. You served the time. Yeah, I, I, I'm with the judge. It's, I get it. They're, I'm surprised all these people are getting behind him. I mean, back then it was a wave of terror in Cleveland, and he was a big part of it. So, 
Seems like he will finish his life in prison. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Dealing with homelessness has been a duty of Cuyahoga County government. So, Layla, why is the city of Cleveland getting involved? Well, the city won't say it, but I, I think it's fair to say here that they're stepping in to tackle this problem because the, the county hasn't done enough. We know that earlier this winter, as the first snows were starting to fall, we had people sleeping on the streets because of a gap in funding of what's known as the seasonal or emergency shelters. These are usually in places like churches, and they open their doors to unsheltered people who, for one reason or another, or another are, are resistant to going to one of the county's traditional shelters. And when the weather is tolerable, many of the folks sleep on the streets. But when the weather is really brutal, as it was for a couple stretches so far this season, they need to go somewhere. And these seasonal shelters meet that need. In recent years, ARPA money has covered the funding for these places, and that is starting to evaporate. So a few months ago, the folks who were running the shelters reported that only one of them could afford to open with 35 beds, which really wasn't enough to meet the need. And they could only operate for about six weeks. So they were trying to figure out when the need would be most critical to open their doors. When we asked the county why they hadn't funded these important resources, they said that they prefer to focus their attention and funding on the traditional shelters instead, where there are a lot of social services provided. So that brings us to this week when the city of Cleveland decided to do something about it. City Council voted to provide $225,000 to the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless and the Metanoia Project to help run seasonal shelters. Justin Bibb also announced that the city is partnering with the county to distribute a combined $3 million to a variety of programs that support unhoused families, youth, and older adults. Though we're waiting on more details about that money and what programs we're talking about. But the key here is that Providing services to the homeless is not the city of Cleveland's responsibility. That is squarely on the county, which has a dedicated office of homeless services. And the county has not addressed this issue adequately. The city won't say that. The spokesman went only so far as to say that the city recognizes that if they want to see sustained success in addressing the issue, it would require more direct involvement from the city and that other urban areas handle it that way, too. But I think if you read between the lines, you can see what's going on. The county is too busy, you know, providing security cameras to hoity-toity neighborhoods to worry <laughs> about its full duty here. This right. is wrong. I mean, Cleveland doesn't have unlimited money. Cleveland is always tight because of it's a poverty-stricken city. The county should be doing this job. The city 100%. has all sorts of responsibilities to its residents. This is not one of them. And I just don't quite get it. Why isn't the county stepping up here. We th This problem, as we've reported, is much exacerbated this year. So why isn't the county intensifying its efforts? Right. I completely agree. And as far as this $3 million pot that's going to be going to different programs, I, I want to know more about that. We're going to ask some questions to find out if that is that city money too? Um, because really then the city is starting to take over you know, control of these kinds of services. And this is the health and human services function that the county is supposed to be serving. Yeah. You got to know that behind closed doors, the city is very annoyed with the county. They're trying to work together on a lot of good projects. So they're not going to openly be critical, but you can, sure. there's no way they're not annoyed that they're having to step in. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Has the Cleveland Clinic fully thought this one out? Has it ever asked the question of chat GPT? Laura, what is the clinic's strategy for making its operation more efficient in the future? It's artificial intelligence. And 
no, you're not going to have a robot serving you bedside. But there is a huge nursing shortage and they can't hire their way out of it. Obviously, we've talked before about the travel nurses and and there's just there's just no way out of it. So you got to figure out a new way to do things. So the clinic's partnering with a company that uses AI to predict the number of patients coming to the main campus every day, the number of surgeries going on, how the resources should be allocated in a more streamlined way. So that's kind of a back office thing. But then patients will be dealing with AI they AI could be responding to your questions when you answer them on my chart. And according to some kind of research they've done, apparently the AI answers could be faster and more compassionate than answers by humans, which tells you something probably about how harried and overworked the health staff is. The co- clinic says they're very cautious about using AI in medicine and results generated by AI will be checked by humans, but that they're forced to do this because of the sh- shortage, but it's going to make them more efficient in the long run. Layla, you've played around with ChatGPT. You, you know what you get from AI. Would you be comfortable having AI Absolutely determine Absolutely not. Price? No. I, I sometimes ask ChatGPT to help me write headlines, and I don't trust that, that, <laughs> that, that it's uh, got that right. So um, no way, no way. But I don't exactly know what you know what caliber of AI we're talking about here. It's a it's a whole world that is beyond yeah. my. But they're scope using AI in all sorts of medical research. Think about the number of studies we've talked about just at Case, where they used AI to comb through all of these existing studies and results, and they were able to match things that they you wouldn't have seen with the human eye. You know, t- to come up with new understanding of how drugs interact with others or, or different diseases. I, I, I agree that AI is terrifying, actually, but it sounds like there are really good uses for it. Okay. And it's not ChatGPT. Like, that's not no. who you're talking to no. when you ask a question of my chart. <laughs> yeah, right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Did a federal judge in Cleveland basically accuse prosecutors of seriously overstating the role and responsibility of a Russian hacker involved in the notorious cyber gang TrickBot? Leo, this was kind of surprising what happened. It's not the kind of turn of events you normally see in the courtroom. It was. Judge Solomon Oliver uh, sentenced this guy, Vladimir Denayev, to five years and four months in prison for conspiracy to commit computer fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Prosecutors were seeking a term of six and a half years for his involvement with cyber gang TrickBot, which extorted millions of dollars from businesses, governments, and hospitals around the world. But Oliver made it made a point to say that this guy was a lower to middle rung player in this massive scheme that included hundreds of hackers. So while he recognized the need to send a message to hackers with this case, he he didn't want to put the full weight of the responsibility on this this one guy's shoulders. And he also held off on ordering a restitution payment. The attorney, uh, U.S. Attorney Duncan Brown, was arguing that Denayev should be on the hook for $47 million. That's the amount the FBI believes TrickBot stole from 2018 until Denayev's arrest in June 2021. But Denayev's attorney argued that that level of restitution was completely unreasonable and overstated for his level of involvement. And Denayev told the judge that TrickBot managers initially kept him in the dark about his role in the world in this worldwide malware and ransomware group once he figured it out he kept helping the group by developing software 
that penetrated cybersecurity programs and infected all these millions of computers, including hospitals during the pandemic. But, um, you know, federal prosecutors brought these charges against TrickBot in Cleveland because, you know, some of the victims are here. Avon Schools lost $471,000 and North Canton Business lost uh, about $750,000. So that's why this is here in our jurisdiction. But this guy was a very low player on the totem pole and the judge did not feel like he should be shouldering the entire burden of the case. Yeah, I salute prosecutors and the feds for investigating the case catching some of these folks, but this guy's a foot soldier. To say he owes the $47 million is preposterous, and, and it really causes a credibility issue for prosecutors when they do things like this. They got him. They got him dead to rights. He's going to prison. He's paying a price. Why go so far? Why push so far beyond where common sense goes to die and people look at it and say, what are you thinking? 47 million for this one guy is silly and good Mm -hmm. for Oliver to call it out. It did actually sound like for the majority of the time that he was working for this operation, he was actually kind of living in poverty and uh, thought he was just working a, an IT job. Uh, But then, you know, eventually he did get brought into the loop. So there is there, you know, he does have some, some responsibility, but not all of it. Right. Not, not anywhere close to all of it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Beloved WKYC meteorologist Holly Strano offered her first update to her followers after her drunken driving crash on Thanksgiving night. Laura, people were interested in what she had to say. What did she have to say? Yeah, they were because you're right. She is beloved. And she is doing a lot of thinking, crying, and reflecting as she sits in her grandpa's chair. And that's the image that she showed in the social media post. She said she's deeply remorseful for the events of that night when she crashed her car into a utility pole. She's worked at WKYC since 2002. She's been off the air since that accident and her arrest. She said, sometimes we have to make mistakes that are so big we can't go back. We have to notice. I was making so many small mistakes leading up to that day. I was living in denial. And what happened that night is um, she was spotted by a Cuyahoga Falls police officer going 70 miles an hour in a 30 mile per hour zone. This is the valley. I mean, these are twisty, dark roads. And it was it was dark. It was 730. And um, there's video of that. There's video of her doing the the test afterward. And a lot of people were really interested in the story. I think because when you see someone on TV every day and they tell you what the weather is going to be like and how, how to prepare, you, you do feel a kinship with them. Well, look, the first step to recovery is acknowledging the problem, which she's doing. And mm-hmm. if she does this in the right way, she might help others also recognize these issues in themselves. She, she is a central Northeast Ohio figure. I mean, people know her and respect her and how she carries herself forward could do a lot of good. So we'll have to see how this goes. Uh, it was, uh, uh, it seemed like a, an acknowledgement that she's got mm-hmm. a long road to go. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We got one more day in the week. So come on back Friday for another discussion of the news. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Laura and Layla for participating. <laughs>